Okay, so if you have a Bible, why don't you flip it open or your electronic device, touch it and go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. So we're going to continue in the series that um, we've been doing over the last several weeks. I guess we took a little bit of break over Christmas in the book of Acts. So, so chapter 4, as you're flipping there, chapter 4 builds on chapter 3, right? That's kind of obvious. Most chapters in the Bible build on the chapters right before them. But the point is, it's important to know the context. And so this chapter especially is really important to know the context of what we're talking about before we get into it. And much of the context is in chapter 3. So I'm going to give you the really quick two-minute recap of what chapter 3 is about, okay? So in chapter 3, Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest friends, probably two of the three, maybe the two closest men, uh, male relationships that he had on earth are walking to the temple. They're going to the temple for a time of prayer. And before they can even get into the temple courts, they're approached by a beggar. They're stopped by a beggar. Not just any kind of beggar, but a lame beggar, right? Not lame like, man, look at lame. Lame like, <laughs> lame like he has a severe physical impairment. Actually, uh, another translation says he was crippled from birth. Okay, and he stops them and he asks them for money. And I want you to, I want you to like try to get your your mind into into the scenario, into the text. And so imagine Peter looks him straight in the eyes. He stops. He looks him straight in the eyes, and he says to him, "Listen, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk." Right. And immediately this man's feet and his ankles become strong. Like imagine the scenario. His feet and his ankles all of a sudden become strong. It says they reach down to like help him up and he jumps up to his feet and he's able to walk. He is healed. And there's people all around. Like there's people seeing all of this stuff. They see it and they're shocked. Like imagine they're mouths dropping when they see this man that they had known. So it says later in the text, it says he's been crippled. He's over since birth. He's over 40 years old. I'm 46 years old. So it says it would be like my entire life. This man has been crippled. And all of a sudden at the words of Peter, he's healed, right? So you can imagine that on their faces. And so Peter sees that God has done this miraculous thing, right? God has done a miracle. And what that miracle did was it opened up an opportunity for Peter to be able to testify to who Jesus was, right? There's this miraculous thing. And people are like, what just happened? And Peter sees the opportunity and he shares the gospel. He testifies to them that Jesus Christ is Lord. He shares the gospel with them. He says that the one that they, collectively they, the Jewish people, disown and handed over to be murdered was actually the author of life, the holy and righteous one, the savior of the world. And he challenges them to repent of their sins, to turn from whatever it was that they were following to God for healness and forgiveness through the cross. He says, this is what all the prophets pointed to, which is what Josh talked about last week, right? So much of the Old Testament are prophecies that are pointing to this Messiah who would come to heal and save and restore. And Jesus is that Messiah, God's Messiah, who would heal and restore the world. He alone, Peter says, is our solution to the problem of sin and brokenness and lostness that each of us have. He will turn us from wickedness to blessing if we desire him to and if we allow him to, right? And by the way, so those words are written, I don't know, 2,000-ish years ago. 
they still hold true today, right? Like all of those promises, if you sit here this morning and maybe you're investigating who Jesus is, maybe somebody invited you at Christmas and you want to know just a little bit more, all of those promises in chapter 3 still hold true for us today. And so that's, that's essentially chapter 3. So if I were to summarize chapter 3 in one sentence, I would say it this way. Jesus Christ is God, Savior, and Healer. Right? Essentially, chapter 3 is all about Jesus Christ is God. He's the Savior of the world, and he is the healer of mankind. That's essentially the message of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a powerful, powerful passage. And then you get to chapter 4, and chapter 4 also is powerful. So in chapter 4, some of the Jewish religious leaders try to step in to take control, which is interesting to me, right? Like I, I started thinking about that. We were, in fact, we were talking about it. I have a small group that meets on Saturday morning, and we were talking about that. Like our human tendency, when things aren't functioning the way that we desire that they function, to go, I'm going to control this situation. I'm going to grab control. And that's exactly what the Jewish religious leaders do. It never ends well for us, and it didn't end well for them either. So look at it. Chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. So as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. Let me say that again. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees, by the way, were a group of religious leaders back then that, interestingly enough, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe. The Pharisees did. The Sadducees didn't. And so they hear Peter and John talking about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of us if we trust in Jesus, and they're greatly annoyed. I'll come back to that. And they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. We'll stop right there. 5,000 men. How many total people is that? I don't know, 15, 20,000? So that's the point of the young church that we're at right there. And so as you're reading the Bible, one of the ways that God teaches us things from his word is when you're reading, there's certain, you know, words or, or phrases or concepts that you read that just sort of catch your attention. They jump out to you, right? That's one of the ways that God teaches us. And so as I was preparing this for this morning, one of the things as I was reading that section that just jumped out to me are those two words, greatly annoyed. And I want you to like just consider again the situation here. So God had done an incredible miracle, right? Like you have this guy somewhere in his 40s that had been crippled from birth, hadn't been able to walk, which by the way, back then that would have made him a beggar. That would have made him an outcast in society. His family likely would have distanced themselves from him because they would assume that he was that way because of some sort of sin, right? And so you had a man who was crippled from birth be healed, right? Like all of a sudden his legs start working and these people see this, these Jewish religious leaders see this and what is their response? They were greatly annoyed. Like just imagine that. Like imagine how, what a strange response that is, right? And then Peter and John explained that it was the power of God that was responsible for them being greatly annoyed. So I read that, and my first thought is, just to be honest, is, man, they're crazy. Like, how could you have that response? 
Like you see this man, like how could you not feel compassion and joy? Like I imagine this man's face as he's able to walk. He jumps up. How could, how could greatly annoyed be your response? So I read that, I'm like, they're crazy. What's wrong with them? That's my initial response. And then my second response, my, my second thought, my more thoughtful thought, is that maybe sometimes I'm not that different. You know, like maybe, maybe the times when what God is doing doesn't fit into the little box that I have for him. And my response is irritated. Or maybe my response is also greatly annoyed, right? Sometimes when we read the scriptures, we read, especially guys like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these guys, we look at them and we're like, they're crazy. I'm, not, I'm nothing like that. We actually often are, right? Like we may be different in degree, but we're not different in kind, right? So regardless, they arrest Peter and John. They took control of the situation, and yet many heard the gospel message and believed. Look at verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them, Peter and John, in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Okay, stop right there. So some of the religious leaders see what's happening, right? And they step in. They try to grab control. And they bring Peter and John before the rulers. I mean, take this in. The rulers, the elders, the scribes, the high priest, and the high priestly family. This is all the bigwigs, right? This is the most important Jewish religious leaders that they were. I imagine as I read that, part of their intent was intimidation, right? We're going to bring these lowly, uneducated, common fishermen in front of the big wigs. There's, there's, there's intimidation going on. And they ask Peter and John, by what power and by what name did you do this? And I wish we could, like, hear the tone, you know, because I'm pretty certain it wasn't like, so tell us, Peter and John, by what power? By what? It wasn't, like, inquisitive. I'm sure it was forceful and condemning by what power and by what name did you do this right and Peter and John like take this in Peter and John simply and clearly without as I read the text without a hint of shame without a hint of feeling intimidated they testify to Jesus and they say the one that you crucified is the one whose name and power healed this man you know, the one that you rejected. You know, the one that you continue to reject, even in spite of the fact that he's resurrected from the dead. And it's interesting. We have no evidence 
as I read the New Testament, there is no evidence that these religious leaders at some later point, like the lights come on and they go, oh man, I missed it. Jesus actually is God. What we know is that most, all, I don't know, most of them would have continued in their rejection of Jesus until the day that they died. And so I think about that and here's my takeaway. If you're, a, if you're a note taker, this would be the time. Here's my first point. Jesus Christ is God's Savior and Healer. That's the message of chapter 3. Even though others rejected him and didn't recognize him. He's God. He's Savior. He's Healer. Even though others rejected him and didn't recognize him as such. That was the case 2,000 years ago. And it's the case in our world today too, right? Here's a question. How do you deal with that? Like, how do you, how do you deal with the fact that there are many people, you know, I'm looking at the student section over here, there's many people, I'm sure, in your schools that would go, I, Jesus, I couldn't care less about Jesus. Or you're wrong. Like, how could you say that he's the only way? Like, give me a break. Like, how do you... How do you respond to that in your own life? Is it, is it frustrating to you? Is it depressing to you? Does it, does it cause you to question your beliefs? Does it cause you to question God? Does it cause you to be tempted to just stay quiet about what you believe and what you've experienced with Jesus? Like, how do you, how do you respond to that? Or... Does it light a fire under you? Like, does it cause you to want to cry out to the Father for other people, for their souls? Does it challenge you to stand firm in your faith, resolved in your faith? Does it help you see the need, your need for the church? Does it help you see your need for people to be around you that believe as you believe, to encourage you and help you hold firm in your faith? See, there will always be people that reject Jesus. It's part of our existence as human beings. It just is, right? Josh emphasized last week, if you were here last week, at the end of the sermon especially, he emphasized, uh, I think he called it divine authority, God's sovereignty, essentially, right? Closely and mysteriously mingled with the reality of God's sovereignty is the reality of our own free will, right? like of high importance in God's value system is our freedom to be able to choose him or reject him. For whatever reason, in God's value system, it's really important that we have the ability to choose him or reject him, to have freedom, right? And then he holds us accountable and responsible for our choice. And there will always be people that choose to reject Jesus. Even in cases like this, when his power and majesty are so obviously displayed. I mean, this guy just got healed. And they were greatly annoyed, right? And they continued to reject him. And I would say this too. If you sit here this morning and you're committed to him, and you're not ashamed about that, and you let people know about that, there will be people that reject you too, right? Like that's, that's just part of it. If they rejected him, they'll reject us. 
kind of goes with the territory. It's just, it's what happened with Peter and John in the passage. So here's a good thing to consider. I like to ask questions, get your brain going. Here's a good question for you to consider, especially beforehand. If you're a Christian, how will you respond if you're rejected because you follow Jesus? You know, like, probably a good thing to think about ahead of time, right? I got a text this week from um, a young man that I had been mentoring for the last couple years, and and during most of that time, he uh, was dating a young lady, wonderful young lady, and I don't know, a week or so ago, Actually, I saw it on Facebook. I saw it on Facebook. I can't believe he didn't tell me. Uh, I, I saw they got engaged. And I was like, oh, congratulations, you know. And then, and then he, um, I got a text from him shortly after that. And he asked me if I would do the ceremony, if I would officiate the ceremony. And I'm like, yes, of course. You know, like, that's so cool. That's such a privilege. But it got me thinking about um, when I said I do to my wife, Marcia. She was in the first service. She's not here right now. But when I said I do to her, and, uh, you know, we were, we were like, actually, I think we have a picture. You had a picture? Oh, yeah. Actually, when I, when I, Danielle does the slides, and I, I sent her the picture, I said, don't laugh, you know, because it's an old picture. And she responded back. She's like, ah, it's not that bad. I thought you'd have, like, a mullet and a powder blue tuxedo. Like, <laughs> it's not that bad. And I'm like, yeah, I've been bald a long time. Saves on haircuts, though. But anyway, she looked beautiful that day. And she has looked beautiful every day since. I made a joke about it in the first service. I asked her beforehand. I was like, you know, especially when she wakes up in the morning and her hair's all crazy and she takes out her, like, bite guard that she's... (laughs) And And people were like, you don't say that on stage about your wife. But I asked her. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Anyway, here's my point. Here's my point. When I was standing on the steps, when we were standing on the steps of Memorial Chapel... And we were committing our lives to each other. When I committed my life to her, I promised to have and hold her from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. Right? When I made that commitment to her, I promised that to her and her alone. Right? That's what, that's what you do in marriage. My commitment was to her and to no one else. Now listen. That's the same kind of commitment that Jesus Christ expects us to make to him as well. To him and no one else. Look at verse 11. So this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Listen. Whether we believe it or not, whether we accept it or not, whether it's popular in our world or not, the scriptures are really, really clear that Jesus isn't one among many gods. He's not one among many viable options. According to this, he is the only option, right? And so in your outline, I said it this way, here's my next point. Jesus Christ is God, Savior, and healer, and no one else. I probably should have put an is after it, and no one else is. Jesus Christ is God, Savior, and healer. Some will reject him. Not everyone accepts it. He's God, Savior, and healer, and no one else is. Just like when I committed myself to Marsha and Marsha alone, I said no to every other woman on the planet. 
and, and I wear a wedding band to remind me of that commitment, right? In much the same way, when we trust in and submit to and follow Jesus, we reject every other option in our life for salvation, but also for purpose and meaning and transformation. To be a Christian means we put all of our eggs in Jesus' basket, so to speak, right? In the stock market, that's unwise. It's wise to diversify because you mitigate risk in case you made a bad decision. In Christianity, we go, nope, I'm not looking to mitigate risk. My choice is Jesus and no one else. That is the only road that leads to forgiveness and eternal life. And I say that knowing that maybe for some of us, that's really hard. You know, we can be honest about that. That's not a very popular perspective in our world today, right? Like when we, when we believe in exclusivity, is the word that I believe that Jesus is the exclusive way to salvation, that's not very popular. It's much more palatable to people to say things like, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. He, I mean, he's my way. He's my truth, right? He's my truth. That, that's a lot easier to say than, no, I believe that he's the way and the truth. And of course, if you remember what Jesus said in John 14, he says, he claims, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus Christ is God's savior and healer and no one else's. Look, look back at verse uh, 13. <clears throat> now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and recognized that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Let me read that one more time. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And then they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So let me, let me stop there. This is the part that I feel like God just made so deeply personal for me this week. Like it was, it, this was the emotional uh, push for me this week. And don't, don't forget the context. So they brought Peter and John in before the full regalia of you know, Jewish religious leaders, the most intimidating of the most intimidating, the highest priests, the highest scholars, to set these lowly, common, uneducated fishermen in their place. They're going to set them in their place. And, and, and what was the result? Well, the result was these bigwigs, the Jewish religious leaders, were astonished at these men's boldness. That, that word boldness, that can mean different things to different people. In this context, that word boldness, here's what it means. A free and fearless confidence. They were astonished at these uneducated common fishermen's free and fearless confidence, their cheerful courage, their assurance, right? They spoke with the most important, most respected religious leaders in the land with a free and fearless confidence to teach them about the person and power of Jesus Christ. And the religious leaders, it says, were shocked. They were astounded. They were astonished. And then they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. Oh, yeah. These, these were two of the disciples. These are two of the guys that spent lots and lots of time with him. So maybe you want to write this down. Jesus Christ is God's Savior and healer, and he transforms us. 
and he transforms us. And I want you to just chew on that for a minute. I want you to just start thinking about that, that kind of transformation. How does spending time with Jesus change us? Like, how does spending time with Jesus affect us? How does spending time with Jesus transform us? Well, I'd ask you, how is it, how does spending time with Jesus affect you? How does it change you? How does it transform you? I could tell you how it transformed me. I was thinking this week what I, you know, about all of this and what I wanted to share with you. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that before I was a Christian, so I came to know the Lord when I was 20 years old, before I was a Christian, I was the most self-centered person that I've ever met, that I've ever met since then. And, and I don't say that so, you know, to be you know, self-deprecating in front of you so that you like me to put down your guard. And I, may, I mean it. I think everything that I did in one way or another was directed to me, was about me. I did things that would benefit me. I did things that would make my life easier. Sometimes, either directly or indirectly, sometimes it may have looked a little bit more selfless on the outside, a little bit more altruistic on the outside, but I assure you, either primarily or exclusively, Every meaningful decision I made in my life was ultimately about me. It was my deepest sin, my greatest sin, my greatest ugliness. You have your own sin. You know your own heart, right? That, that probably will look different for, for you. For me, the level of selfishness and pride and arrogance, they all kind of go together, was, it was awful. And so when I was 20 years old, <clears throat> my dad invited me. I didn't want to go. He invited me to um, a conference, a big men's conference in Pittsburgh. The old, there used to be a stadium called Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh. And he and a bunch of men from his Catholic men's Bible study and a bunch of their sons were going. I didn't want to go, but I went. And at this conference... On the first, it was a Friday night and it was a Saturday. And on the Friday night, they would always do a really strong gospel message. It's what they did. And then they would do an altar call with it. <clears throat> and I remember, I've told this story, like this is, my, this is like my testimony. I've told my, this story, I don't know, dozens of times over the years. And there was something that the man said on that Friday night. I don't remember anything he said except one sentence. And this one sentence actually had really nothing to do with the gospel, like very little to do with the gospel. The one sentence wasn't like, and Jesus died for your sins. It wasn't that. It wasn't like, and his blood covers over you. You get forgiveness. You get, it wasn't anything like that. But it was exactly what I needed to hear. This is what he said. He said, when is the last time you cried for men's souls? The last 20 years, I thought, why did that hit me so hard? Like that, I, I couldn't connect the dots in my head. But in that moment, that sentence, that question laid my heart open. And I thought, 
I've never cried for anyone's soul. I don't think of anyone outside of myself. And it was like God showed me the degree of my selfishness and my pride, just how ugly I was on the inside. And then he met me there. And he showed me how much he loved me. And he showed me he had plans for my life. And he showed me that there was forgiveness and there was grace and there was new beginning. It was the most personal thing. It was, it was the way he was going to reach me with the gospel, right? Like, I think like, that's, that's what he does for us, right? And that day, that was salvation for me. And then all of a sudden, starting that day, he rescued me. He started the transformation process inside of me. He started changing me. And I went from this person, and, and let me tell you, let me be the first to tell you, I am a huge work in progress, just like you. But I went from this person who would make decisions solely based on myself, really, to someone who tries really hard to love people and care for them and put their needs ahead of mine. Jesus started it then, and he's continuing it every day since. And here's what I know. The more time that I spend talking with him and listening to him and depending on him and reading about him and serving his church and loving people outside the church the way that he loves them, the more and more time that I do that, the more and more changed I become the more and more I become like him. And listen, I promise you, it is the same thing for you. It was the same thing with Peter and John. They were transformed from this, these common, uneducated, sinful fishermen to two of the most bold, fearless, greatest fathers of the church. Like, what a promise that is, that God can transform. I hope this hits your heart this morning that God can transform broken, flawed, imperfect, sometimes rebellious, sometimes indifferent, oftentimes selfish people like you and me into people that closely resemble Jesus Christ. That's pretty amazing, right? Here, here's the question. The question is, will you lean into him and allow his spirit to do that kind of transforming work inside of you. It doesn't just happen by default. It doesn't just happen because, yep, I had this great experience with Jesus, and so no matter what I do, I'm gonna be growing for the rest of my life. That's not how it works. Like, we have to make choices to lean into him, to be honest with him, to open up our life before him, and that can be scary, right? It's scary to be honest about our ugliest sins. But the good news is, Jesus is gentle, and he's humble in heart, right? Matthew 11. Look, look back at the text one more time. One more thing, and then we'll be done. <clears throat> so the Jewish religious leaders, they're astonished at Peter and John's free and fearless confidence, and then they remember that they were with Jesus, and so they go, we got to figure out how to stop all this. Like, how do we stop this annoying spread of Jesus Christ, according to their perspective? And so they send Peter and John out of the room and they discuss it, right? And what they decide upon is that we're going to tell them 
don't talk about Jesus. That's their solution. Don't talk about Jesus to anyone anymore. That's the answer. So they call them back in the room and they tell them that. Look at verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You got to judge if it's right to listen to you or if it's right to listen to God. But here's the deal. We can't help but speak of him. We can't help but talk about him. We can't help but help people understand the power and meaning of Jesus Christ, right? And I don't know what you feel like when you read that, like what goes, what goes through your mind, but I look at that and I look at Peter and John's courage and their priorities and their passion and there's just something about it that just resonates so deeply inside of me. And I was praying this week, I was like, why does that, like it just gets me going, you know? Like why does that resonate so deep inside? And here's the reason. It's because that's what I strive to be like, right? In my own flawed and imperfect way. I look at them and I'm like, that's, that's what I want in my life. That's what I want to be like. I want to be somebody who loves Jesus so much that, that, that is so grateful for what he's done in my life that it just like spills out of me. That, that even if I wanted to control it, I like couldn't control it. I want to be somebody that wants to please him so much more than any other person or ideology or system, whatever. So I want to, I want to be somebody that puts him so high that I just, I, it's not an option for me. I, I'm obedient to him. I want to follow him. I want to be somebody that doesn't just make decisions because it might make my life a little bit easier right here and right now. I want to make decisions knowing that there's an eternity that's coming. And the decisions that I make today will affect others' eternity. Right? Forever and ever and ever. So I look at this and I'm like, Lord, may that be me. May that be me. And my prayer for us is, may that be us. May we be people like them that can't but help can't help but speak of Jesus. It just spills out because we love him and we've been transformed. We're being transformed in him. He's changing us. He's growing us. We spend time with him. So, so here's my last point. And then I have one last question. Here's the last point. Jesus Christ is God's savior and healer. And so we submit to him above all else. So we submit to him above everything else in our life, everything else in our world. And here's my question to you. Have you submitted your life to Jesus Christ above all else? And, and you're going to be tempted if you've been a Christian for a long time to go, yep, and not even give it a thought. Don't do that. Because the reality is things sneak their way in to our heart. And things start to take root. And things start to get way more important than they should be. And oftentimes when we slow down and stop and evaluate and go and evaluate our time, our words, our priorities, we pull back and we go, you know what? I think I've let some other things take priority in my life. I think I've let some other things be a little bit more important to me than what Jesus would have for me. 
Have you submitted your life to him above all else? We know some will reject him. It's 100% true. He claims to be not just one way among many, but to be the way, the only way. He never promises that those of us that follow him will have easy lives. In fact, he promises the opposite. He says, in this life you will have trouble, right? Matthew, uh, Matthew 16, John 16. He promises that he demonstrates over and over again, you see this in the scriptures, that if we love him and follow him and make him the priority in our life, there will be others that reject us and don't want to have anything to do with us. It goes with the territory. And yet, he holds the keys to eternal life. He holds the keys to purpose and meaning and joy and peace, transformation. It's in him. And he loves you. Maybe some of us need to hear that this morning. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've thought about, no matter what you've entertained in your head, he loves you. And he has plans for you. If you come to him, if you allow him, if you submit, if you lay your life down and say, it's not my life anymore, I, I give it to you, I trust you. There's a beautiful process that he changes us. And so that's my prayer for me and that's my prayer for us as a church. Lord, I pray that wherever we're at this morning, you know, God, you know every one of our hearts here. You know everything going on in our minds. You know every sin that we've ever committed. You know our name and you love us. And you don't reject us you give us the choice to come to you, to lay our life down, to submit to you. And then somehow, mysteriously, simultaneously, you work in that process and you draw us and you pull us to your son, Jesus. I pray for those that are here this morning that don't yet know you, God, that you would do, that today would be the day that changes the rest of their life, that they would respond to the call that you've put in their life and they would submit to you and turn their lives to you. I pray for those of us that do know you, that in our own broken, flawed way are trying to follow you. God, help us to walk closely with you, to make you more important than everything else, and may it not even be close, so that we can't help but spend time with you and tell others about you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Christ's name. Amen. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.